Hayden Dunnell, welcome. Midweek Media Watch. Let's just come back. This is a come beautiful, tranquil introduction to my segment. Wow. I feel like mood-wise it's going to be a bit of whiplash going on here. Well, I'm, I'm up for whiplash. Okay. Now, you wanted to start by talking about the so-called post, the post-cyclone crime wave in the Hawke's Bay. Now, you are right, so that was just a, a note for our listeners. Sorry to take you out of the sugar and spice. But now into Midweek Media Watch. Where you go, Hayden? Well, this, was, this is the big news of the day, obviously. It was covered by Colin on Sunday. The discussion has continued a pace about the uh, crime wave, uh, so-called, in the Hawke's Bay. Police obviously deny that it is one. Uh, I'd like to start by noting one story from News Hub earlier this week that did really make me question my grip on reality. So its first sentence is, the crime wave hitting the Eastern District following Cyclone Gabrielle has continued, with police confirming a further 25 arrests in the past day. All well and good, uh, but read to the sixth paragraph of the same story and you get this sentence, which is, despite the consistent arrests over the past week, police said the the district-based statistics remain within the normal range. Now, I'm no scholar of language, but those two sentences, while very close together in the story, do appear to be in direct conflict. So if a crime wave is normal, does that mean that the Eastern District is in fact surfing an everlasting wave of crime? But if you're always on the wave, can it really be a wave at all? Aren't waves, by their very nature, defined in relation to calm seas? They're an aberration from the calm seas. The whole thing has got me feeling very philosophical. Okay. Keep going. How philosophical? Well, it's just... I. Uh, those uh, you, you really have to reconcile those two pieces of information, right? And so there are really only two options there. So the first is, I guess, that the media news hub has information that the police don't. They have information proving the police's statement wrong. There is, in fact, a crime wave that the police don't know about. The second is that maybe that's a wave of a particular type of crime. It's not an overall crime wave. Now, I, I mean... On the first one there, the the, the media has information the police maybe don't. There's been a lot of reporting on the ground from the Hawke's Bay. There's a heap of reporters there. There's been a great many stories about this kind of behaviour, looting, all that sort of stuff. And and so I'll just play a few of them. This is is one of them. This is from News Hub at Six's Samantha Hayes in the Esk Valley. Gangs are coming in, or just looters in general, are coming in, trying, threatening people, stealing his stuff. Low lives are just coming out, trying to steal the food that's been dropped off, um, filming the street so that they can come back later and grab generators and quad bikes and whatever has survived. And that, that breaks my heart. This isn't a knock on Samantha Hayes or anyone collecting these stories. They are obviously newsworthy, they're, they're concerning, they're hard to listen to, and the media rightly feels that it's its job to talk to people in these flood-stricken zones, report their appeals for help. So uh, no worries with that. This is Anna Byrne Francis actually doing just that on TVNZ's Breakfast this morning, reporting on a meeting of Esk Valley residents from Tuesday night. 
She sent her husband down the end of the road to do nightly cordons because they really felt like the police and the army should have turned up but hadn't turned up. And that's a feeling that we are getting right across the district, that there just isn't maybe enough presence of authorities, that it just doesn't look like there's enough of them in town. We were in Esk Valley. Now, that uh, woman that Anna Burns Francis was referencing there at the start of the clip who'd sent her husband down the end of the road to do cordons, that was the organiser of this meeting uh, of Esk Valley residents. Now, interestingly, the same woman actually appeared on Morning Report, uh, where Kim Hill, uh, she did a good job of probing a little bit deeper into some of her assertions, and this is what she found. In other words, are you saying crime has increased, or are you saying people are just afraid it might? Oh, no, no, no. No, it's increased. It's definitely increased, because if the crime rate right now is normal, as they're saying it is, then we're in serious trouble. Um, We're getting people breaking into houses down just down the road they're coming out here and taking you know, all of our all of our neighbors lives are on the street right now because their houses were flooded and these ferals coming into the neighborhood and taking that stuff i mean but the stuff is going to be wasted anyway isn't it it's flood damage <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i guess you could put it that way now i mean taking people's stuff that's on the road maybe it's Poor practice, maybe it's not allowed. It doesn't exactly sound like solid evidence there of a crime wave taking place, which has been stated as fact by places like News Hub and others. And I mean, another claim made at that Hawke's Bay meeting that was organised was that gun stores had sold out of shotguns post cyclone. That was fact checked by News Hub's Karen Rutherford, and she was told by gun store owners that sales had actually been low post the cyclone. So, I mean, again, this is just to point out some potential issues with just reporting these stories. So there's no problem reporting them. They're legitimate concerns. Uh, Unoccupied homes, they are obviously being burgled. There is looting. There is crime happening. It's just maybe somewhat iffy questionable practice to to take that extra step and make assertions about overall crime based on this sort of not always reliable anecdotal data and claims that actually are contradicted by the police data. So, I mean, that's nevertheless what a lot of outlets have done, notably News Hub, as I mentioned, but also places like News Talk ZB. Over here at RNZ's checkpoint tonight, you had National's police spokesman Mark Mitchell saying confidently that the police are just wrong about their crime statistics, and he cited a meeting he went to where he asked who'd been a victim of crime recently, and a third of the people put up their hands. So he said... This, look, the police just can't be right. And look, <laughs> I'm, kind of re- I'm kind of wrestling with this because maybe there is something to that. I mean, after all, communications were down for a while. Police lines weren't working. People have mentioned the 105 number wasn't really going, uh, wasn't working very well. We certainly know of at least one case where a road worker had a gun pointed at them. They were threatened in the Hawke's Bay and police initially said that didn't happen. They were wrong, uh, that the police commissioner, Andrew Costa, has apologised for that today. So there's that. Um, But when Andrew Costa apologised, he also asserted, you know, there are a range of things being reported in the community, many of which appear to have been simply untrue. And he called for an extra layer of checking to validate whether the things that are being reported have indeed happened. So that's advice that he gave for police, but it could be good advice for the media as well.
So does this have some echoes of the youth crime wave coverage we were seeing last year? Yeah, I just felt, I felt like it, I mean, it has a few similar elements and they're both based on real and quite shocking events, right? The, the youth crime wave coverage that we had last year was based on something real. There was this rise in this really headline-grabbing type of crime, ram raids, uh, which are confronting, they're damaging, they have real victims who lose their livelihoods, and uh, the potential issue happened when News Hub, oh, News Hub, not News Hub, sorry, News Hub, News Outlets, you can't put news in your name, News Outlets responded to this uh, rise in this quite shocking type of cr- crime by extrapolating it out to all crime and called it a youth crime wave. So the issue there was that the statistics actually showed a substantial drop in youth crime year to year from June to June uh, 2021 to 2022 from 1,500 to 1,300 offences finalised in court for people aged 10 to 17. The end of year statistics in 2022 also showed a 2% drop in youth crime year on year, though there was an increase in places like South Auckland. And look, that, that, that may all be subject to change, but the official evidence wasn't quite there for a youth crime wave, even if there was, for a ram raid spree or whatever you want to call it. And I think that maybe looting and stuff after a natural disaster is a similar kind of thing. It's also unconscionable. It's also really uh, quite visceral. You know, you really feel angry about it. Uh, reporters gravitate towards covering it. Their eyes are already on those regions for other reasons because they've been devastated. And, and we never... You have this kind of uh, laser-like focus on a topic with the news. There's a chance that we'll distort the real picture if we don't take care because that's just the nature of things. We've got a huge platform giving a huge platform and huge amounts of attention to what is usually what we're covering as an uncommon event. It can make that event seem more common than it really is, and that effect is powerful. It can even fool us in the media, and I mean... That's why we get stuff like what we call, I mean, this theoretical term, but moral panics where we might report on, say, knife crime or teens doing satanic rituals in their basements. And then because we've reported on those things, you know, we have people out there that believe lots of teens are doing satanic rituals in their basements or everyone's getting stabbed when it might not really be the case. But it's it's pretty tough, right, to say the media should just accept the police's line on things. Yeah, right? exactly. It kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable as saying, "Oh, well, the police say this, so you can't report this." I, I'm, I don't really want to do that. There are real questions to ask the police here about the amount of support they're providing to residents about looting and other crime. Uh, but I do think if the media is going to report something, then it should have solid evidence, especially if it's something concerning like a crime wave. And that probably goes back to what Andrew Costa said about extra checks. You need more than just like these anecdotes that are going around and rumours in a place that's really emotional and chaotic. And I mean, some of the information that's been cited in the media has been less than credible. And this is not related to crime, but it's an example from Sunday's episode of News Hub at Six. And it was reported there that Esk Valley residents were refusing to follow an evacuation order issued after forecasts of heavy rain on the weekend. And News Hub was basing that reporting on this interaction with a woman in a car who was refusing to stop at a roadblock that had been set up. As we were talking to Lattie, the offenders reappeared and yelled at him. Don't you talk to me about authority. Sorry, man, we're only trying to do our job, man. We're only trying to save lives. Something she didn't seem to care about as frustrations grow. This is an anaesthetic. 
So if you didn't hear what she said at the end there, it was, if the police can go down there, so can we. She was talking about a nanny state. As it turns out, though, that information wasn't coming from a random local passing through or just a person from Esk Valley. It wasn't Esk Valley residents getting frustrated. And credit to a Twitter sleuth who actually tracked down the truth here. They figured out that the woman yelling about nanny states from that car was actually from the conspiracy fueled media outlet Counterspin Media. So she was actually filming her end of the interaction as well. So I'll just play you another clip of that interaction from the perspective of the person on Counterspin Media, and this is her narrating it. They were attempting uh, to protect us from, and I quote, this ship falling down on you, uh, whilst they pointed to a cliff behind them, or a uh, hill behind them. Now the irony of that is that they were actually stationed directly beneath it uh, and were at that point in time holding an interview with mainstream media. So you can actually see the News Hub reporter in the background of the video that clip is taken from. So Counterspin has since gone on to say they're pretty chuffed about their team making the news. And this isn't a knock on News Hub. They weren't really to know. It's pretty <laughs> tough to know that kind of thing. But it does sort of sound a note of caution, doesn't it, about extrapolating from information that's provided to you in a relatively chaotic situation without really being able to verify it. Uh, I think this probably goes to the second point uh, as well, though, that maybe maybe you do need to... Uh, uh, maybe it's not just a, a, a one type of crime that it's maybe it's not a crime wave <laughs> of one type of crime it's it's there the um this there is a spike in a particular type of crime um and that's family violence offenses which seem to be at high levels here so there were 10 reports of burglaries in the last uh 24 hours in the eastern districts that's from the news hub story but there were actually 54 reports of domestic violence but i'm not sure that's the crime wave the media have been talking about though Right. Okay, we're going to take a slight shift here because you also wanted to highlight a good bit of radio from RNZ's Checkpoint. Uh, yes. Uh, now, on Checkpoint last night, Deputy Political Editor Craig McCulloch was commenting on the breaking news that Tefatu Ora Chair Rob Campbell had been fired by Health Minister Aisha Varel, and he was explaining the government's reasoning for that decision when this happened. Um, this, uh, the fact that he Craig, has spoken to Christopher Luxon. Just to carry on with the breaking news, Craig, I'm sorry <laughs> to interrupt you, but on the line, we actually have Rob Campbell. So thank you very much, Craig, and we'll go now to Rob I'll Campbell. Rob, kia ora, can you uh, hear me? Kia ora, Lisa, yes, I can. So that was a pretty deft bit of producing, a quick turnaround by the RNZ operators there, cutting off Craig McCulloch, going to Rob Campbell. And no offence to Craig McCulloch, but... It was worth switching to that Rob Campbell interview as well because uh, true to the former public official's trademark style, it did produce some unusually forthright quotes. And here he is accusing Prime Minister Chris Hipkins of not understanding the Tefatu Order Board's code of conduct. So has the Prime Minister got it wrong too because he wasn't too happy with your comments? No, absolutely. He's completely misinterpreted the code of conduct and my actions. So that's pretty forthright from Rob Campbell. Probably 
uh, not the typical type of line that these people take in their exit interviews. They like to play it safe and not jeopardise their chances of a future job. You know, it's usually anodyne quotes. Rob Campbell, obviously, something a bit different. He's gone out uh, pretty like a meteor on his way out the door. He obviously doesn't feel the same strictures, and he has continued in that same fashion in just about every media outlet we have today, including TVNZ's Breakfast this morning, where he made this point about the concept of public service neutrality or impartiality. Uh, That doesn't mean, as I've said publicly, that I'm neutered. Uh, It doesn't mean that I'm sitting there like a stuffed parrot or a parrot that's been trained just to say Polly wants a biscuit whenever the minister wants. That's not what I'm there for. It's not what I signed up for. Uh, Pretty strong stuff there. He thinks that he really was justified in doing his LinkedIn post where he strongly criticised National's uh, three waters replacement policy. So is there any wider lesson in all of this for the media? Yeah, I mean, I think... I've, I've been thinking about this. It's interesting because... I think, obviously, there's a very good argument that Rob Campbell has broken his code of conduct. I think the media's general line has been to apply the white-hot fire of accountability to him over that. You can understand that there's a, you know, this sort of thing is kind of classic journalistic blood sport, uh, and the coverage is kind of fine in that sense. Uh, On another level, I do wonder whether this might have a sort of chilling effect uh, or whether... This kind of incident might backfire on the media in some ways because if you think about it, caution about political neutrality, being impartial in the public service is a huge amount of day-to-day, causes a huge amount of day-to-day frustration for our reporters. I mean, public servants who refuse to speak forthrightly on anything for fear of losing their jobs are pretty much one of the greatest hindrances we face, right, when it comes to fulsome and quick reporting. And I think it's kind of, ironically, you can kind of see that in the reporting on this. The media, there's almost palpable joy in the fact that this guy is giving them real, honest and forthright quotes. You know, they're so excited by it. Obviously, they're getting him sacked for it as he does it. But, um, you know, we, we can have these regular media complaints about officials gaming the OIA system, for instance, refusing to give anything except pro forma responses, stuff goes to the ombudsman, no one ever talks to you properly. And as it turns out, I mean, maybe these officials might be feeling a little little bit justified in their reticence to weigh in after the events of the last few days. And obviously this stuff can have real consequences. And that's not to say Rob Campbell obeyed all the rules or anything like that, but maybe the rules are not actually, they're definitely maybe not helping us in the media. Maybe we need more people that are willing to speak their mind. And there could be a media discussion to be had about that. Maybe we are too strict about these neutrality provisions. Incidentally, this is maybe a bit wonky, but we're having a similar discussion in the media about what constitutes objectivity. Is it merely not saying any political opinions, or is it willing to speak your mind on any topic right regardless of your political priors and give your real opinion and your honest informed opinion on anything be it three orders or a government policy and uh, I guess be a kind of neutral operator in that sense and that you're not actually beholden to a political party so one of the few journalists I've seen actually approaching that sort of discussion has been Today FM's Tova O'Brien and she noted that Rob Campbell also criticised the government's policy so 
uh, here she is commending him for criticising Labour's initial refusal to put uh, nurses on an immigration green list. Remember that uh, last year. Campbell boldly took them all on in a full force tackle and said not only did nurses need to be added to the list, but that it was Health NZ's number one cross-agency priority, number one. From day one, it gave me hope Te Whatawara was supporting its front line. It cared about nurses who were feeling marginalised, undervalued and exploited. It spoke to the organisation's independence, drive and expertise. Also, the fact that it was willing to set politics aside and fight for what he believed was right. So Tover O'Brien went on to say that Campbell had obviously broken his the code of conduct that he signed up at, up to and had to go. But you can see there that she's kind of missing the uh, one public servant who would speak uh, honestly and openly to her. So I, there's another thing in that there though that I'm a little bit confused by, and maybe some wonky public service nerd in the audience can uh, text in with some information there. But I'm a little confused because can someone tell me why coming out swinging against a national party policy, in this case, their three waters replacement policy, that's a sacking offence. But obviously Tover O'Brien is talking about him criticising a government policy back then, not putting nurses on the immigration green list. Why wasn't there calls for his sacking over that? Uh, uh, maybe I, I imagine that's also against the code of conduct. Text in if you know. Uh, perhaps it would be better though. I've, maybe this is a bugbear of mine, but perhaps it would be better if our public servants in general were a bit more free to express their views either way, right or left or centre, provided they don't openly campaign for a political party. Well, speaking of today FM, they've also been doing a bit of. I don't know, should we call it crusading journalism lately? Yeah, I, well, yeah, it's sort of uh, advocacy. What is it? What would you call it? Journalism. Probably advocacy journalism. Okay. Um, so you might remember a few months ago when Farmac and Today FM had a run-in over its handling of the news that the agency was funding the cystic fibrosis drug Trikafta. And Today FM broke the news on a Friday. Farmac had wanted to save the news for News Hub a six, News Hub's 6 p.m. bulletin on the Sunday. And they got very upset about Today FM preempting that. They blacklisted them from future media announcements and they accused them of breaking an embargo that, to be honest, actually didn't exist at the time Today FM did its reporting. It's all very messy and convoluted. But anyway, the upshot is that Today FM's Rachel Smalley has uh, requested correspondence from Pharmac's chief executive, Sarah Fitt, from around the time of that announcement under the Official Information Act. So here she is introducing her reporting. Now, I take no satisfaction in what I'm about to say because what I want is for Pharmac to be a drug-buying agency that is patient-focused and committed to doing everything it can to get the very best treatments and medical devices for New Zealanders. But it's not that, not even close. It is a brutal political beast. The needs of patients are neither its priority nor its concern. Mm, Pretty strident take. Does she have the evidence to back that up? Yeah. Before we go on, it's worth noting that Smalley is the founder of the group The Medicine Gap, which lobbies for drug funding. So it's not like she's a fully uh, disinterested, totally out of the game party here. But some of the stuff contained in the OIAs that she got is pretty startling. So Smalley's uh, editorial is long. I'd recommend seeking it out. 
uh, it's worth reading or listening to. But basically it shows Pharmac's chief executive, Sarah Fitt, and others in the organisation Pharmac going to some lengths to engineer the most positive media coverage possible for their Trikafta announcement by geeing up a story essentially with Patrick Gower from News Hub at six. You might remember that. Had News Hub staff clapping in the background as they, you know, did the got the news and all that sort of stuff and there were tears. Uh, now that on its own wouldn't be concerning public agencies give out exclusives all the time, uh, but Fitz's emails show her refusing to let Cystic Fibrosis New Zealand and patients know about the announcement early, even after she was urged to do so by the drug manufacturer Vertex. And they uh, they make Trikafta, they wrote to her very concerned that Cystic Fibrosis New Zealand wasn't getting this announcement early so that they could pass something on or they would at least know. Uh, now Fit is shown uh, worrying, or in her email she worries it, Cystic Fibrosis New Zealand will leak the information to patients before News Hub gets its exclusive. But her comms person, Jane Wright, tells her, look, don't worry about it. The worst case, brackets, which is actually the best case, they encourage their followers to watch the Sunday night news without actually saying why. Now, Smalley notes that these are patients that we're talking about here with a terminal illness. And these are the top people at our drug funding agency. And they're worried more about making sure... uh, that these people that are terminally ill don't learn about a treatment decision that will extend their lives before it's exclusively broadcast on the 6pm news and that those priorities are very much uh, called into question by Smallia. She sees it, uh, this is an agency more concerned with getting that exclusive than doing right by patients and that's the reason for that very strident uh, conclusion that she reaches at the start of her editorial. We're seeking out. We're seeking out. Now, today FM is, of course, a MediaWorks station, and there was some other big news out of MediaWorks this week. Yeah, that's right. The chief executive, Cam Wallace, is stepping down, and that's news on its own. But I kind of wanted to highlight some juicy reporting on the topic from Stuff's senior business journalist, Tom Pulis-Strecker. Hard name to say. Tom Pulis-Strecker. Credit to him uh, for getting this stuff as well. Most other outlets probably just went with a press release from MediaWorks. And what did he dig up exactly? Had an anonymous source at MediaWorks who criticised Wallace for a decision made recently to cut uh, 90 jobs, which is 50 existing staff and 40 unfilled positions. And and those are being cut in the source's eyes from profitable parts of the company, while the aforementioned Today FM is going mostly unscathed. And the source is very upset about that. They tell Pull a strecker that Today FM is a vanity project and that the company could close it down tomorrow without missing a beat. And their quote is that there's an abject refusal to acknowledge the truth about the short, short, medium and long term future of this brand. And at the same time, they are forcing the revenue generating and most profitable part of the business to make wholesale significant changes that have no chance of succeeding. So pretty strong stuff from Tom Pullistrecker's anonymous source. So is there truth to that? Has Today FM been underperforming? Well, in the most recent rating survey, they had, I think, a 1.4% market share. That's pretty low. Uh, the company, uh, the, well, the the product that it's up against, News Talk ZB, had around a 15% market share. So, yeah, in commercial terms and ratings terms, yeah, there's an argument that it's been underperforming. But MediaWorks has defended the station, saying it's a long-term project. And I note that it's also vital for an organisation like MediaWorks to have a credible in-house news operation. 
And so if Wallace is really Today FM's biggest fan, will it survive his departure? Well, maybe not. Well, I don't know. I mean, that remains to be seen. But you'd have to say there's an element of risk there on the horizon if the new person isn't so keen. And I'd be sad to see it go. I mean, Tova O'Brien, she's been excellent as a morning host. Some of the journalism it's managed to pull off has been impressive. Not just that dogged reporting from Smalley, but its coverage of the cyclone, Cyclone Gabrielle, the Auckland floods. And I think it's really done what it set out to do in terms of presenting itself as a legit news source, but getting that brand recognition, loyal audience, obviously uh, proving a harder task. Hayden Denell with Midweek Media Watch. Thank you very much. Hey, news thanks. is next. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.